Radio Drone. I am Josh Hadley playing the asshole host of Radio Drone. Whether my performance is any good or not, that's up to you. With me this week is Fred, not B Team, Fritz. Playing the proctologist to judge. Oh, wait a minute. No. Keep no. your fantasies out of this. If you no. do want fantasies, you go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, and you will get 10 free gifts on top of whatever you order. You'll get six free DVDs, a free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, and free U.S. shipping, all for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. See, Fred, wasn't my performance in that promo code just amazing, or was that kind of lackluster? I don't know. I think it moved me. Maybe it moved me to go to the website. adamandeve.com, promo code DROME. Tonight we're going to be talking about performances, <laughs> actors and whatnot. There's good, and there's bad, there's extreme, there's bizarre, and then there's everything else in, in between. When you think of a good actor, what kind of performance do you think of? Do you think of an amazing Gary Oldman-style Oscar performance no matter what the picture is? Or do you think just it gets the part across and you know what they meant, or the third option would be so good and real that you don't even notice it's a performance. Well, that that's kind of the all-encompassing question, isn't it? And I think we could start with an actor that a lot of people love that can answer this question in those directions. And I think Sean Connery is someone interesting to look at. Connery has joked, people have joked about for years that no matter what, what uh, nationality he plays, he always sounds like a Scotsman. Uh, that's sort of the running joke. Have you ever seen The Arab Conspiracy? Oh, gosh. Years and years ago. He plays an Arab prince. Pureborn. That's actually listed in there. And he does it with his Scottish accent throughout the whole movie. As a pure-blood Arab prince. And I'm like, wow, you just gave no fucks in this performance at all, did you, Sean? It, you have to admit, and it's so weird to say this, but that's sort of his John Wayne the Conqueror performance. It really is, because it's like, I don't think there's anything wrong with an actor trying to be another nationality. Of course, as long as it's done respectfully, I don't think it's we're racist not just to do that. Here. Yeah, we're talking about someone that embodies, you know, that's what an actor does, to be someone else or something else. But that performance is, it's farcical. It's, it, as it, like I said, it's exactly like if you look at John Wayne as the Conqueror, who, you know, God bless him, he tried. <laughs> but that's an embarrassing performance all the way around. And for Connery, that's really embarrassing, especially an actor at his level. I'm talking about, like, good movies even with him, though. Uh, Hunt for Red October. The Rock. Well, The Rock. Well, he was himself in The Rock. No, he was, he was implied to be a former 007, kind of. Because it was yeah. actually kind of a subtle dig that he might have been an X 007 which I actually appreciated for a Michael Bay film to say subtlety but yeah so so like I said himself and <laughs> no you're right I actually forgot that they did a joke about British intelligence in that that film and this is a guy that he can be himself and yet he can pull you in make you care so much about that character and he's not necessarily being that character even forgetting the accent He's not necessarily maybe that you're just something about him draws you in. You you go take me for this ride, man. Take me take me along for this journey. And I just think he's one of those guys that does that. And he's an interesting example. Well, now you, you have other examples along that same lines where you have like Seth Rogen or Robert De Niro that play the same character in every single movie. I mean, you show me a single Seth Rogen movie where he's not playing Seth Rogen. 
You show mm-hmm. me a, a very few Robert De Niro movies have Robert De Niro not playing Robert De Niro. You know, you, you've even got ones. I love Avery Brooks. You show me a single Avery Brooks movie where he's not playing Hawk. Captain Sisko is Hawk. He's playing Hawk in the big hit. He's playing Hawk in 15 minutes. Avery Brooks is Hawk in everything. Is that necessarily bad for the actor or for the audience, though? Well, obviously, in certain cases, it can be bad for the audience. Jimmy Stewart has been argued to be like that in a lot of his films uh, because he's always pretty much, you know, the doddering near fool, even though he's highly intelligent. It depends on the role, I would say. It's, it's You said Robert De Niro. Great example is Frankenstein. Again, God bless him. He's trying, right? You, you watch him in the movie and you go, here's a man who's not like he's he's not just not caring. He's giving it everything he can. And it just isn't there. And it, you, all you're seeing is Robert De Niro as Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, exactly. Even when he does the grunts and the groans, you half expect to forget, you know, forget about it to come out. <laughs> it's you can't help it. It's just. Uh, it just gets pulled out. It's kind of like Keanu Reeves is the same too. Uh, Keanu Reeves is, I think he's actually gotten better with age though. Quite honestly, you still hear Bill uh, or excuse me, Ted Theodore Logan coming out of him. Sometimes I, I'll never forget seeing him in dangerous liaisons. And here's a film, you know, you got John Malkovich arguably at the height of his acting talent. And he has a sword fight with, with Keanu and Malkovich gives this, monologue and then all you hear is the earl of ted but then sometimes this leads into another question then what about when an actor like that does break their mold have you ever seen sam raimi's otherwise forgettable supernatural film the gift Mm -hmm. keanu steals that movie as a violent racist wife-beating scumbag you'd almost forget that it's keanu reeves he really kills in that movie I got to tell you, something about Keanu as a villain, he seems to just sell it. Uh, There was a movie called The Watcher with James Spader, which has an interesting history behind it. But that's a conversation for another time. But Keanu, who hates his performance in it, hates the movie, is excellent, just like he was in The Gift. I I agree. Keanu disappeared in The Gift. I was in shock. Uh, it's not a, I know a lot of people like that movie. I'm not a big fan of it. I found it to be completely forgettable, except for Keanu Reeves in that. I, how, how many movies nowadays can you say that about? That's that's it. That's what's interesting is, you know, sometimes we I had a conversation about Academy Awards with somebody, and they, they asked the question, really, what does deserve an Academy Award? Forgetting the politics of what really happens. What would you think would, would be it? And I would say it's an actor or an actress who rises up above the expectations of the audience themselves the director and just goes beyond like uh kim basinger is not what i would call a particularly powerful actress uh she's been good in certain films her entire life but i'm telling you when she did la confidential she deserved the oscar because she rose above anything she's ever done and keanu rose above anything he's ever done in that one scene in or that that one character in the gift. But like with LA Confidential, everyone in that movie was amazing. Kevin Spacey, Russell Crowe, everyone in that movie gave such a amazing performance. If Basinger didn't rise to that level, she would have been the weak link. And that sometimes does happen. You ever oh, see yeah. the 1988 film The Betrayed? Well, which, give me the plot because I might be forgetting it. There's a lot of betrays. It's the Joe Esterhaus film where Tom Berenger is a racist, white supremacist. Yes, and Deborah Winger. And, right. 
So you've got Tom Berenger killing it. Jeffrey DeMunn killing it. Ted Levine killing it. Deborah Winger looking like she's bored out of her fucking mind throughout the whole movie. She is the absolute weak link in that movie. And yet she is one of the two main draws for it of the selling point. This is Deborah Winger after Officer and a Gentleman. And she is just dwarfed by all the talent around her. She cannot keep up. That's one of those cases where it's hard to say, I mean, was it miscasting or was she just in the wrong place? Uh, we've seen her in many performances and I would say she could do it. But for some reason, she didn't. this film, yeah, she didn't. Or was it, say, like uh, the movie A Stranger Among Us, which I'd laugh if many of you out there know this movie. It's a Sydney Lament movie uh, with Melanie Griffith in the lead. Melanie, again, is one of those people, the role had better fit her like a glove or it's going to be a disaster. Speaking of her, Sherry 2000. <laughs> she, is, she is cute as hell in that. Her little cupy doll hair and smile and her little cupy voice are, are just so cute and adorable. But you don't buy her for a second as this badass tracker out there, especially when you've got David Andrews and Lawrence Fishburne and Tim Thomerson and all these other actors that are, are really good in these post-apocalyptic settings. She just feels miscast in that movie. Okay, I'm. I, oh boy, this is gonna. I'm gonna lose all my cred here, aren't I? I actually kind of like her in that movie for exactly the reasons you listed. I think she's so awkward in that film that she fits. Because anyone that's seen that movie knows how weird that movie is. Uh, Tim Thomerson as Lester steals the whole movie. It, it, just to see the choices he made and the type of villain he is. I don't know. She fits like they're hanging from the the magnet. And she's about to shoot a bazooka and like, are you OK? It swallowed my gum. <laughs> she's so weird in that movie. I, I almost think it fits. Well, Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Speaking of that, you brought up Tim Thomerson, or I did. Somebody brought up Tim Thomerson. What about actors who swap between villain and hero? Like, is it is it sometimes hard to believe that Tim Thomerson is a villain versus when he's a hero? When somebody plays a bad guy so often that when they're playing the good guy, it's off-putting. Someone like Michael Ironside or Eric Roberts or Malcolm McDowell, when you see them as the good guy, you just instinctively expect them to turn out to be the traitor. Like, when we did our Best of the Best retrospective, Meg Foster is Eric Roberts' girlfriend in that. Throughout the whole movie, every one of us kept expecting her to betray him at some point because it's Meg Foster. <laughs> Why do you cast Meg Foster and not have her betray somebody. Why do you cast Eric Roberts and not have him kill somebody? Like the movie Moon 44, the first Devlin and Emmerich film. I think a highly underrated film. There's supposed to be this big mystery of who the traitor is. It's like, well, Malcolm McDowell's the commander. He's the traitor. You know what? He was the traitor. Sometimes the casting, when you get an actor like that, hurts the film, doesn't it? it yes, it can, and it does. I'll go against one thing that you said that 
you almost always have to have them as the bad guy. And when you cast them as a certain type of good guy, I think it, it can bring something special to know their past. Uh, I've talked about this a lot before, but the concept of what I call cinematic shorthand. You know, you want a tough guy that you don't want to spend too much time on a back history, you hire Clint Eastwood. And you bring somebody like you want a tough, you know, guy with maybe we don't trust, hey, Michael Ironside. But it's really awesome when you get a Michael Ironside in something like V the Final Battle where he played Ham. And, and stole that and miniseries from its star, Mark Singer. Took that whole series away from everybody, not just Singer. Uh, I don't know. A, I Growing up watching it, let me tell you, there wasn't a kid who didn't want to be Ham if they played, you know, V. <laughs> they, everyone loved Ham. Everyone. Nobody wanted to be Donovan. Nobody wanted to be Donovan. They wanted to be Ham. And that's a role that you would have to give to somebody that looks a little shady. And that's what made it so wonderful. And Tim Thomerson, as, uh, Tim is actually played so many different types of roles throughout his career and you know i'm a huge fan of tim i'm i'm a gargantuan tim thomerson fan i i i'll always see him personally as the tough good guy that will be my personal favorite iteration because of jack death but he's also been uh the sarge in zone troopers and he was of brick bardot in doll man and he's been the hero but he also played these more gentle these gentler heroes in like uncommon valor which is an interesting film because it's got a lot of people in it. Patrick Swayze and uh, Gene Hackman and Robert Stack and some, you know, real powerhouses. And Tim is this helicopter pilot and he's not playing any of the type of roles you're generally familiar with him. And, but he's wonderful. And I remember walking away from the movie going, man, I wish there was more Tim in that. It, he's a great character. So I, I think that it depends on the role that we're talking. Sometimes it, it is fun to see. Well, one more. Lance Henriksen. Let's bring Lance into this. Come on. We're bringing up the B team here. So Lance Henriksen, this guy's been mostly bad guys, but has played a lot of great gray area good guys. Bishop, of course, from Aliens. But his performance in Millennium, I don't see anybody else playing Frank Black. When, when you bring up Millennium, it's funny considering that John Hurd was who Fox wanted to play that part. Now, we obviously never got to see that. But I, I'm, I'm with you. I can't imagine John Hurt, who is a very talented actor, mm -hmm, very talented. Pulling, pulling off the Frank Black role after seeing what Lance Henriksen did with it. I just cannot see it. Yeah, and what's interesting is, is that there's a performance that was partially shaped by not just Lance, but by Chris, Chris Carter, because they talk about it in the behind the scenes that Lance would approach, like, I think it was uh, he was talking with his hands a lot, and Carter said that he kind of feels that Frank's more like still kind of like a snake ready to attack. <laughs> and so for, uh, I almost said Frank, see, he's Frank to me. Uh, Lance took that in and absorbed it into his performance. And I, I just can't see anybody else being that guy. Like we pointed out with Keanu Reeves and whatnot, like for the watcher, who the hell remembers James Spader in that, even though he's arguably the star? Yeah. Look, at, look at a movie like Stone Cold. That was supposed to be Brian Bosworth's star vehicle. That was the movie that when you looked at all the promotional materials, this was the movie that was going to make him an action star. What's the only thing anyone remembers from that film? Lance Henriksen being batshit crazy as Chains the villain. Couldn't just, I couldn't agree more. He he is the movie. He's the reason to watch the movie. You can tell he is having the time of his life. He also ad-libbed the best line in the whole movie. I remember my father's last words to me. Don't, son, that gun's loaded. <laughs> that was an ad-lib that was not in the script. Best line of dialogue in the whole movie. 
And and there's a guy who gets absorbed in his roles. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the story about near dark where he almost got shot. The cop, him, Bill Paxton, and oh no, I forgot her name. I forgot so Goldstein. Bad. Thank you. All from Aliens. They got pulled over by a police officer, and they decided to remain in character. And if you've seen Near Dark, and if you haven't, shame on you. Then you know just how intimidating these three are, especially together. But again, Lance, the way he, you know, we talk about great lines. There's a scene where Tim Thomerson, our boys in this one too, uh, shoots Lance Henriksen, and he actually coughs up the bullet, takes the bullet, sticks it in Tim's pocket, and pats on his shirt. That's it's all done in the body language, in the face, in the eyes. That's an actor, man. That is an actor. What about one of the actors who unfortunately didn't become, quote, famous until the Internet that surprises the hell out of you sometimes? Like Reb Brown. Mm-hmm. Reb Brown is a very one-note actor. Very. <laughs> I mean, in everything. An incomplete <laughs> note, too. Yeah. I mean, when he was on Miami Vice, he was playing Reb Brown. When he's in Strike Commando, he's Reb Brown. Robo Command, Robo War, Reb Brown. Captain America, he was Reb Brown. Then you see him in Death of a Soldier, and you go, holy shit. Who the hell taught him to act? He's phenomenal. He's, I mean, the movie is about him, so he doesn't steal it from himself. You'd hardly recognize this is the same chest McLarge huge from Space Mutiny. Mm-hmm. What happens when an actor like Reb Brown really gives it their all? But I'll give you another one that a lot of people don't know about. And I don't know if, because uh, I know Noah Antweiler sort of kicked off this Reb Brown thing a little bit. Maybe he didn't start it, but it's he definitely made it bigger. But it's a movie called A Distant Thunder with John Lithgow. And this seems to be one of those movies that has flown under everybody's radar. Uh, Reb's not the star of it. He's he's in a smaller role. But he's quite good as a disturbed Vietnam vet. It's weird. I'm not saying he's a man of great range, but he is a man who can perform. And Even going back to things. Uncommon Valor, he gives a very quiet performance oh, as Blaster. Reb was actually very good. In that film. Actually, everybody's good in that film. Patrick Swayze is a real surprise because he was very young and nobody knew who he was yet. But he's actually quite good. But Reb is is also very good. It's surprising. And I I think it has a lot to do with what's surrounding you. You know, you said about uh, LA Confidential when I brought up Kim about all those wonderful people around her. And there's no doubt that it's it's the surrounding environment that makes something. It's like think of a offhanded example think of the shark in jaws okay when the shark jumps up on the boat towards the end of the movie before it eats robert shaw does not look very realistic you know if we're going to be honest with ourselves it's not a very realistic shark i mean come on it actually teeters downward as it hits the boat and and, and you can see the mechanics in its mouth you can see the mechanics but you don't care because jaws has been building up with all these wonderful people Okay, and all you care about in that scene is Shaw and Schreider, Roy Schreider, because, you know, uh, Dreyfus is underwater at that time. And they're the they're what you're focused on. All you need is a giant machine going, you know, that's it. You don't care. Nobody cares that the shark doesn't look real in that scene. You only have what was necessary for that moment that could kill them. And it does kill one of them. The same thing applies to actors. Sometimes a so-so actor can get by just by those surrounding them. Not always, as maybe the movie Dracula (laughs) proved, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Since I was talking about Reb Brown before, subtlety is not normally a word you would associate with Reb Brown. 
what about when an actor, whether this is what they're known for or they make a bizarre choice to do this, or it's, maybe it's what the director wants, what about when an actor who can do extreme subtlety decides to go the exact opposite and say, F*** it, I'm nuts, like Gary Oldman in Leon the Professional. He is in a different fucking movie than the rest of the cast, isn't he? I, I have to agree, and the first time I saw the movie, it almost pulled me out of the film, too, uh, the first time. Now I adore the performance. And I sort of get what he was doing. That one tap dances on landmines, that's for sure. Gary Oldman's one of those actors that doesn't even need to be the star. Because to me, there are two scenes that are super, super memorable from True Romance. Gary Oldman's one scene as Drexel and the Christopher Walken, Dennis Hopper scene. Oh, of course. Those two scenes are so amazing that the rest of the movie could have failed. Keep in mind, I love the movie could have failed, and, and that movie would still be remembered for those two scenes. And it's strange because both of those scenes are really isolated from the main plot. The Drexel one is important to the plot, but could have been pretty much excised with maybe a little bit of it left in. The walk and Dennis Hopper scene could have been completely excised and it wouldn't have made a lick of difference. But having them, them in the movie makes it so much better, especially when you've got an actor like Christopher Walken playing against Dennis Hopper with a fucking Tarantino dialogue. This is when I, I agree. This case, it's it's definitely uh, transporting nitroglycerin in the back of a truck on a shaky road. You're an eggplant. <laughs> but but uh, this this performance. In fact, I'd almost go as far as to say this film would have failed without those two performances. And yet, neither one's instrumental to the plot. Isn't that funny? Yeah. It there's a again. You cannot underestimate the importance of tone in a movie tone sets the film especially early I, I have a uh, what I call the five minute theory that the movie is set in the first five minutes obviously that's not the first five minutes of this movie but I'm just saying that the beginning sets everything up for us to know what we're in store for and if it gets it right we can forgive so much down the line and you've seen movies like that right you know you that you're drawn in and you're like ah oh, screw it I'm hooked for the rest of the movie and to me, that's one of those moments. The minute that scene happens, you just have to know what happens next. Where where does this go from here? I don't think it ever quite lives up to that moment, but it was still a good run. Well, but then you all you also have actors who are known, like I said, for, like Reb Brown, who are known for being over the top, and that that's not necessarily fair. That performance, that style, is what they got famous for. I'm looking at someone like William Shatner. Mm. Now, obviously, everyone knows him. You know his very Stutter delivery from Star Trek, which, of course, he would then pull onto all the TV movies he did in the 70s and T.J. Hooker. He used it brilliantly as Denny Crane, but by then he knew he was in on the joke by that point. But you look at Shatner's pre-Star Trek work when he was on The Twilight Zone and Boris Karloff's Thriller in The Outer Limits or Roger Corman's The Intruder. If you didn't see that was William Shatner, you'd You'd never guess that was William Shatner. He's not, quote, Shatnering it until he got famous. Is that a wise acting choice? He's taken the joke of who William Shatner is and turned that into a performance. Or maybe a career is a better way of thinking of it, because this man could act. This man could not. He could really act. He could do these great monologues. If you if, if you ever get a chance to find a copy of this intruder, I really recommend it. But if you really want to see Shatner, the actor, you've got to see this film. The intruder is also Shatner like people are not expecting him to be. 
he is a virulent, racist Klansman. That's not what you think of Captain Kirk or T.J. Hooker doing, do you? Yeah, he's he's deplorable. Uh, you know, you could almost, if this were a Twilight Zone, you'd expect him to uh, turn out to be the devil by the end. He's vile. <laughs> I'll tell you something right here and now. It may be hot tonight, but it's going to get hotter for a whole lot of people. This here little town's going to burn. What I mean, it's going to burn the conscience of the country and put forth a light that everyone and everybody's going to see and feel. This town I'm talking about, Caxton. People, something happened today. Ten Negroes went into the Caxton High School and sat with the white children there. Nobody stopped them. Nobody turned them out. And you know what they're saying? That means they're saying that you all don't give a darn whether the whites mix with the blacks because you didn't fight against it. Well, I say, how can somebody fight what he doesn't see? They've kept the facts away from you. They've cheated and deceived every one of you. They filled your heads with filthy lies and kept you in the dark so that when you finally do wake up, why, we're sorry, but it's just too late. I'm associated with the Patrick Henry Society, which is an organization dedicated to giving the people the truth. What I'm going to tell you going to make your blood boil because I'm going to show you that the way this country is going to go depends entirely and wholly and completely on you. Now you all know that there was peace and quiet in the South before the NAACP started stirring up trouble. But what you don't know is that this so-called advancement of colored people is now and has always been nothing but a communist front headed by a Jew who hates America and doesn't make any bones about it either. Well, the commies didn't waste a second. They knew only too well, friends, that the quickest way to cripple a country is to mongrelize it. So they poured all the millions of dollars the Jews could get for them into this one thing, desegregation. They went to the courts. Now, Judge Silver, who is a Jew and is known to have leftist leanings. Who says so? The record says so. Look it up. Abraham Silver, for one thing, belongs to the Quill and Pen Society, which receives its funds indirectly from Moscow. So what did the judge do? Went right ahead and ordered integration for the Caxton High School. Your mayor and the governor could have stopped it, but they didn't have the guts. That's right. All right. Now, you may think, the problem is simply whether we're going to allow 10 Negroes to go to our schools. That's only a small part of it. I'm in a position to know because the Patrick Henry Society has studied the whole thing. 
The real problem, whether you like it or not, is whether you're going to sit back and let desegregation spread throughout the entire South. And it's an indisputable fact that there could be no other result. The Negroes will literally, and I do mean literally, control the South. The vote will be theirs. You'll have black mayors and black policemen the way they do in Chicago and New York already. Like it's not a black governor and black doctors to deliver your babies. If they find time, that is. And that's the way it'll be. Did you ever stop to think about that? When you let those ten enter your school, did you? Now let me ask you. Do you people want niggers taking over? No! And are you willing to fight this thing down to the last ditch and keep fighting until it's over? Then I'm willing to fight with you! Why, Mr. Kramer? Why? Because I'm an American, sir, and I love my country. And I'm willing to give my life, if that be necessary, to see that my country stays free, white, and American! On the Henry Rollins show, he couldn't understand why Roger Corman cast him. Because all he'd done is, you know, Twilight Zone and stuff like that up to that point. Couldn't understand why, why Roger Corman cast him in this. And then when he got there, he said he, it was so easy. He said disturbingly easy to fall into his role because they were really shooting this in Alabama. And let's put it this way. All those Klansmen in the movie aren't actors. <laughs> so he said it was disturbing how easy he fell into that role. And he said it took him months to get out of that role after the intruder was, was fin after the intruder finished rapping. That's so, not what you think of when you think of Shatner, is it? No. And when they say those actors were three sheets to the wind, they meant something completely different. But yeah, he of course adapted the, the, the persona of Shatner. I'm doing air quotes, of course, later when, uh, well, first, uh, before we get to the big one, he did a movie called free enterprise which is actually a fun little movie. It's interesting. I think this is where it begins for him. Shatner playing Shatner begins to become a thing. And of course, that leads to what, what performance we both absolutely love. Denny Crane. He, here, here was the thing about the final season of The Practice. They knew it was the final season of The Practice. James Spader had already stolen this show from the main cast. At the point they brought William Shatner into the show as Denny Crane, Boston Legal was not meant as a spinoff yet. He was just going to round out the last eight episodes. And then they saw the amazing chemistry between Shatner and Spader. And ABC was like, these two guys have got to get their own show. So it's kind of funny how that happened for Denny, for Denny Crane. Let's be, and James Spader, I mean this in a good way. James Spader is on my top list, by the way, of top actors. I, I could, we could do a show on James Spader and I would love just talking about him. Uh, this guy has done so many amazing performances, but he can be big and grandiose. And we were talking about casting particular actors against actors uh, when we were talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And there's no doubt that Shatner as Kirk is a bigger than life character, right? I think you'd agree with that. When you cast Ricardo Montalban as Khan, 
come on, that's there's only one other person that could choose scenery, scenery like Shatner, and that was Montalban. And that was just brilliant mano a mano casting. So I happen to think of James Spader and Shatner in very a very similar way, to be honest. That also brings up then actor chemistry. You could tell that Shatner and Spader were perfect. You could tell that they loved each other off camera. Okay, when it comes to a David E. Kelly script, he usually makes the actors stick to the dialogue, but their performances felt so ad-libbed that helped the performance because it felt like they weren't reading from a script. And when you get chemistry like that, it's very rare. For instance, did you ever see the Highlander spinoff, Highlander the Raven? No, I apologize. I pretty much hated every iteration of TV series of that show. Okay, well, Highlander the Raven was a disaster because the two main actors hated one another off camera to the point where they had zero, zero chemistry on screen. And they're supposed to be lover characters. And you can tell that these two actors do not want to be in the same room with one another. So chemistry is very important between actors, especially on a TV series more, more so than a movie. You have to have chemistry. I think it, it, it's, it's much more rare to have great chemistry than it is when you can tell when two actors don't like one another. Like mm-hmm. the new Ghostbusters movie. Obviously, we haven't seen it yet. Almost every story that's coming out from Hollywood Insiders is the four main Ghostbuster ladies couldn't stand one another on set. There's no way that that's not going to bleed through into their performances. Yeah, it. I agree. You've got to have some fun, I think, and it, 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 it can come through. Or let me rephrase that. It does come through. You know, if it's a dark – there's so many stories of like uh, – I'm trying to think of one right off the – Martin Sheen, his breakdown on Apocalypse Now – that's a very negative-vibed movie, and yet here's a man who had a mental breakdown. They actually kept it for the movie. He has a breakdown on camera, but it also comes through the rest of the movie, and so that comes out. And I believe that does happen in all film. If you're not having any fun behind the scenes, it, it bleeds through the film, man. Apocalypse Now, you had Marlon Brando, who refused to read the script, and besides mm-hmm. all the other problems Apocalypse Now had, Marlon Brando was arguably the biggest one, because... He was the name that sold that movie. Because really, you got to remember, Martin Sheen, not a big name at that point. Lawrence nope. Fishburne, Harrison Ford. I mean, yeah, it's post-Star Wars, but Harrison Ford's only got a small role. Marlon Brando was the what sold that movie. When Marlon Brando doesn't want to play ball, and he wants to do his own thing, and he's not getting along with anybody, that can doom the movie. What about when an actor is so much larger than life that, that they cease being an actor? For instance, like, like Orson Welles. To me, I love Orson Welles. Man, all the stories about him being nothing but trouble on the sets on almost every single film lead you to believe he started to believe his own hype a little bit, didn't he? You know, he would claim he, he didn't care at all. That was sort of what he was saying. I don't know. I, I think that maybe they get scared sometimes is what I think, and they're so afraid of the persona overshadowing the person that maybe that's Part of the problem, but I'm now I'm playing psychology here, so I can't really answer that question. Well, sometimes it even comes down to just the name and the extras for the Moonlighting DVDs. Remember, Orson Welles, one of the last things he did professionally was the Dream Sequence Always Rings Twice episode of Moonlighting. Bruce Willis and everybody are in the new documentary talking about how filming Orson Welles sequences, which only took about six or seven hours, drew the most cast and crew of anybody. That, you know, they've got all of these future stars. They got all these people on the show who are becoming superstars, and everybody 
wanted to come out and watch them film Orson Welles for this TV series. At the same time, Orson Welles felt this was below him, and he told them if he didn't need the money, he wouldn't be here. What does that say? All these people are idolizing him, and he's looking down on them, kind of going, God, I don't need this. What is there to say? It's sad, and it, it says more about the person who he is in his life, not his performance, not his performing. I, I think we could say, let me think of a good example, like Nick Cage. I wasn't going to bring Nick Cage up in this because he's such an obvious go-to, but there is something to bring up about him that Nick Cage is obviously an internet meme. Like, he's the dream internet meme, isn't he? People quote him all the time from his crazy movies. He seems to seek these movies out to be insane, but they forget there's an actor in there. And you said at the very beginning of the question about when the persona becomes bigger than the ability to play the part. I think Nick Cage could be that person who's in danger of that, where, okay, are we getting the Nick Cage or are we getting the actor? And I think the actor can win out. If, again, it's a good script, you always have to get a good script, all right? If there's not a good script, we can forget the conversation. But a good script, they have the desire to want to act. And Cage is still occasionally pulling out a great performance. I think the same could be said for somebody like Orson Welles or Marlon Brando, had they had the desire. And I think the answer is right there. They didn't have the desire. What about when the actor's name becomes more important than the actor? Now, mm. there's a lot of instances of this, but one of the ones for our audience would be Italian exploitation. What was one of the main rules of Italian exploitation? American actor, Italian surrounding cast, Italian everything else. But almost every Italian exploitation movie had one American actor, usually someone who was a name on their way down. Well, obviously, in the case of the Italian market, that's because they were very business centric. I mean, we often think of Hollywood as being the only one that thinks that way. And they've obviously never studied Italian cinema because these are the people that actually start off the conversation with tell us what movie your film is like. They they look for a way to break the American market. That's always what they're hoping to, or were hoping to do. I'm not going to say for now, but then in that period, Lee Van Cleef, you're talking about that period, right? Lee Van Cleef, Donald Pleasance, all those guys. When I'm, were... No, I'm actually talking about the Fred Williamson, Vic Morrow, well, the, same the, period. Late, the late yeah. 70s where you're getting John Houston and people like that in Italian. Yeah, yeah it's the same place. period. Okay. Yes, exactly. The same period. Yeah, th that was just simply to break the market. That's why they were giving a lot of their actors like American names, their directors, American names. That was simply to break the market. Uh, I don't think that they were looking for a great performer. That's sad to say, but it's true. And I think when you look at Sergio Leone, we almost have an accidental gifted man rising up. It, it does feel that way sometimes because there's a lot of talent and you could sift through those films and find some great directors and some great performances, but they are the exception, not the rule. And I think that that was because the films were marketed. They were they were aimed at a particular market. That's why. Okay, well, what about when the name of the actor is genuinely surprising to be in a film? I can't even count how many, like, famous Star Trek actors or anything. Cecil, just he did a review a few weeks ago about this really bad CGI bug movie. And I kept kind of looking at this fat American guy in it going, why do I know him? Why do I know him? And then when he finally said it was Robert Duncan McNeil, I went, Tom Paris from Voyager? And you're just shocked. You're like, dude, what happened to your career? How many times have you looked at some exploitation movie or something, and there is someone who used to be super big, and all of a sudden you're like, 
what the hell are you doing in this no-budget piece of crap looking completely sullen? Mm-hmm. What about when you're surprised that a formerly big actor is not just on their way down, is hitting rock bottom? One performer that there are those guys you think, wow, this guy's going to have a huge career, right? And like a Craig, I, I, I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, Barinko. He was Bierko. Long Kiss, Bierko, Long Kiss Goodnight, and one of my favorite films called The 13th Floor. But an actor that always surprised me where he ended up was Brad Dorif. Brad Dorif, if anyone's ever seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you want to talk about a performance where the actor disappears, it's Brad Dorif as Billy. That performance still amazes me to this day when I see the movie. And uh, there are times I just I look at DVD covers and I see that he's in it. I just can't help but sort of sigh, you know. And I'm not even talking the Chucky thing. You know, the Chucky pays his bills. You have two actors who were huge in the 90s at around the same time who took weirdly different career paths, both in terms of talent and exposure. And that would be Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal. Both of them kind of lost their shit around the same time, and they got banished to direct-to-video hell. Seagal gave up. He got fat. He didn't care. He wouldn't come back to do his own overdubs, and he looks bored and everything. Mm-hmm. Van Damme, on the other hand, said... You know what? Let's let's have some fun with this. He got to be a better actor. He learned nuance and he learned subtlety. What about something like that? Because isn't that along the same lines of Brad Dourif where for a while, right after he fell from grace, I went, oh, Jean-Claude, I'm sorry you're in this movie. And then mm-hmm. I watched the movie and went, wow, he was really good in this. And then Seagal is the exact opposite. Wow, Seagal just gives no fucks, doesn't he? Yeah, I think that's where that word desire comes back in. Uh, Jean-Claude has always said he had a passion. He he sort of like Schwarzenegger in a way that that he focused on just becoming an actor. That's all he wanted. That's all he ever really, really wanted to do. And I think that desire is still there. It's still prevalent. I mean, which which expense he was in Expendables 2 and that movie sucked, but he was wonderful in it. Whereas Seagal, I think it I just think he gave up. I really do. There's your Orson Welles. And then another name that was of that period, uh, more 80s, late 80s into 90s. But you remember Michael Pare? Yeah. There's a guy I honestly thought would be a big Hollywood action hero. After Eddie and the Cruisers, I'm surprised he didn't really have a hit again. He didn't. And it's... It's weird. I'm not going to sit here and say Michael Prey is this, you know, vestian of of acting. He's he, he as far as that leading man action hero, he, he fits the role. He fits the bill. And why that man never got bigger is beyond me. He can act. He does have at least some range. Obviously, he's that good looking, you know, ruggish looking guy. He's still for for his age. He still looks pretty good, too. Yet, there you go. Why didn't he make it? He never gave up acting. He always seemed to care. At least, he seemed to. What happened there? What happened to certain actors, like Val Kilmer, Christian Slater, it makes you wonder, like we just said about Michael Perret, the guy never stopped being good at his job. He just couldn't find hits anymore. Mm-hmm. The same thing kind of happened with, with Christian Slater and Val Kilmer. You look at them on their way down, their performances aren't getting any worse. Just the caliber of the movies they're in get worse. I think Christian Slater's gotten so much better when he moved to TV. There was that there was that terrible Fox show, Breaking In, where he was a supporting cast member. He was stealing that show from the main cast. 
And then Mr. Robot? Christian Slater got better when he went to TV. Val Kilmer got fat and bloated and became a joke. Yeah, Val Kilmer, who, again, we won't even argue can he act. He most certainly can. Oh, absolutely. Uh, How weird that it just came up. I said to someone, this is earlier today, I said Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was his last good movie. This person was like, oh, really? And they went to the IMDb and they're like, oh, my gosh, it was. (laughs) Vel, I think, is that guy that just was impossible to work with and the opportunities dried up. That's it. I, I honestly believe that. And, you know, perhaps if he had a change in attitude, who's to say? As far as actors and acting and performances, it could be just the lack of good scripts. I mean, I honestly think if anyone's ever seen Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, this movie is just like a powerhouse of performances. OK, and you want to talk about seeing actors in an in their environment, like uh, just to make an aside, Jack Lemon, who's in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, was also in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. But Jack Lemon is universally panned in Hamlet. He's terrible. And this is a great, you know, one of the greats, one of the great American actors. He's terrible. It's a small bit role. He's one of the guardsmen and he's awful because it's not his thing. All right. Delivering Shakespearean pentameter. That's not why you hire Jack Lemmon. So there's a you you hire Jack Lemmon as an Italian American shopkeeper. Well, you you hire him as that all American, you know, that every man that's me or the Bill or John or, you know, he's a real man. Basically, do you know he was originally supposed to be the the lead in Death Wish? He was supposed to be Paul Kersey. If you go by the book Paul Kersey, you can see it. I'm personally still glad they went with Charles Bronson, but that's me. But my point is, is that Glengarry Glenn Ross, you get to see Jack Lemmon, the actor. But the person I want to bring up is Alec Baldwin. Here's a man who I think could have just gone away in a puff of smoke and obscurity, if not for just having great roles landing at his feet. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't have ability, because in Glengarry Glenn Ross, he shows it. That speech, the put-the-coffee-down speech, he he dang near steals the movie. And this is a movie with Kevin Spacey, Al Pacino. We're talking powerhouses, and Alec Baldwin holds his own. Well, could that be because not only did he have the talent, but he's reading a freaking David Mamet script? That's what I think it comes down to a lot, is maybe there's just not enough good projects out there to go around for good actors or it could be just exploitative producers for instance look at david carradine david carradine obviously got famous for playing kwai chang kane on kung fu right so when he hosted saturday night live all the jokes were about kwai chang kane they brought kwai chang kane back for the gambler movie in 94 and then for the tv series in the early 90s to bring him back and then he basically played kwai chang kane again in about four different Roger Corman movies, Warrior and the Sorceress and Battle Truck and all that. He was playing Kwai Chang Kane. And he's he admitted they hired him because they, they basically told him, play this like Kane. So it's, it's not like what we were talking about before where someone like Seth Rogen has no range and just plays Seth Rogen. Mm-hmm. What about when an actor gets stuck and all they wanted from David Carradine was play a variation on Kwai Chang Kane? All I can really say to that is that Perhaps what was necessary, and I know this is hard, but he should have said no more often. We see a lot of actors rebuild themselves. They take chances. Uh, one of my favorite actors, again, is, I'll, I'll mention here, is uh, Stacy Keach. I love Stacy Keach. This man has been in so many roles, so many styles, and he got a phone call to be in this new TV show, Comedy. 
And at, he first thought, no, I don't want to do anything like that. And his daughter said, Dad, how many people are ever going to call you to do a comedy on television, no less? You're talking about Titus, aren't you? Yes, I am. One of my all-time favorite uh, TV show sitcoms. And the reason it is, is because Stacy Keach is the show. It might have been called Titus. But the show was Titus's dad. Oh, I agree through and through. I thought and, I thought that the, the two Titus main actors were worthless. I hated their storylines. Stacy Keach was what you watched in that. Well, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say worthless. I think they served their purpose. But there's no doubt you stayed for Stacy Keach. And my point here, back to David Carradine, is is that. Keach has always taken risks. He took risks his entire... Go Seriously, go look at this man's filmography and you will not believe the roles this man has taken. And there is some dogs in there. I mean, there are some woofers. We're talking run over by the car, dead carcass in the middle of the road, rotting for days bad. But those glimmering, shining moments are all there. And that's because he took chances. I think some of the greatest actors of our time have taken chances and i know this is going to sound weird i think that's why john wayne is even remembered john wayne if you really were to watch his entire filmography i think people would be shocked he's not that all-american western hero guy in every one of those movies he's very dark in a lot of them and there's a lot of variation that's what i think makes a lot of great actors is taking chances going outside yourself quiet man is not the tough guy role you think it's actually he's a man seeking peace. If you do the same role you're known for and that's all you ever do, well, how can you be known for anything else? Speaking of that, though, with, like with John Wayne, what about when you're locked into a certain type of role? Mm -hmm. For instance, like when Mel Brooks was prepping Blazing Saddles, he actually wrote the Waco Kid part with John Wayne in mind, kind of John Wayne parodying himself. He gave the script to John Wayne. Wayne, when he, he met with Mel Brooks and said, this is the funniest script I've ever read, and I'll be the first in line to see it, but there's no way I can star in it. Because it was too far outside of his image and his safety zone. He, it would taint his image to have played this, this drunk, vaguely homosexual Waco kid in this movie with this many instances of the word nigger. John Wayne just couldn't do it. You get that in a lot of places. Like I know J.K. Simmons has talked about how if he had not have, if he had not been the voice of the Yellow M&M before he was Vern Schillinger on Oz, he would have never gotten the role because the Vern Schillinger role would have overshadowed him doing cartoon voices, the all the insurance commercials, or or the Yellow M&M because J.K. Simmons got famous a rapist, vaguely pedophilic, rape racist, and he's also the voice of the Yellow M&M. So isn't it funny how, how sometimes actors can't expand because of what they're known for? And, and this will always be one of those downsides that exists. Uh, uh, it's, you know, and it's easy for me to sit here and say, hey, go seek out a better role. Well, you know, it, you got to eat. They got to have a home. Uh, people often ask, why is that actor in that movie? Well, they probably wanted to eat that week. Bruce Campbell calls those alimony movies. Gene Hackman, who... Has I think he was the one that said the, the car payment movies was <laughs> the term he coined. And yeah, then Bruce Campbell with the alimony movies. And yeah, they have to work. And that's what it comes down to. And so, you know, I just said about David 
Hat should have sought different roles or said no. But then again, maybe the man, when he said yes to these roles, maybe there wasn't anything else happening. Uh, so we have to take that into account. And it's sad when that happens. There, I know there's some actors, uh, there's a thing on uh, YouTube, and I can't remember the actor, but there's a show on YouTube called No Small Parts, and I really recommend it. It's actually a very good little show, and it highlights different character actors. And one of them, and that's what—that's the guy's name. I can't remember. All he's ever played is the police detective captain, you know. And he—that's all this guy's ever done. Well, he's glad, and he's happy because he said, "Hey, I have never gone without work." So I guess there's a pro and a con to this. What about when the actor and the director not only can't stand one another, but the director didn't want the actor? Because that happens a lot more often than you'd think. You've got, like, like Richard Stanley's fantastic movie, Hardware. Not only did he not want Dylan McDermott for the role, Dylan McDermott came in, and I'm quoting Richard Stanley here, as a hardcore Bible thumper and tried to get them to tone down all of the violence, the sex, and was reading the Bible to the cast and crew between takes, which was annoying everybody. So basically, Richard Stanley wanted nothing whatsoever to do with Dylan McDermott. And then you've got an actor like Neil McDough. Same thing. Hardcore religious thumper yet he almost always plays a sadistic villain yet he would take roles and then be on set and go i can't do that that's against my faith the, you know I, I can't sleep with that pretend to sleep with that woman because that's against my faith and the director would be like why is he here because the studio foisted him upon them what about when you've got and i, I know i brought up two religious elements but you've got lots of other cases where the director did not want an actor what about something like that or tony k he didn't want you didn't want Edward Norton for American History X. That was the one I was going to bring up, actually. Yeah. Edward Norton was freaking fantastic, and yet he was not the director's choice. Well, I'll address the first part first. Uh, as a Christian myself, the simple fact of the matter is is that they should not be going to those types of films. Uh, I don't have any problem with the concept of sharing faith, especially if someone, say, asks you about it. But to go onto a rated r movie that you know will have sex and violence i mean they must have seen the scripts right yeah because uh, uh, i've seen stanley, hardware script it's yeah. it's richard stanley graphic. said on hardware script it was dylan was trying to convert the crew to get them to take the sex and violence out yet yeah. he took the role knowing what was in the movie yeah and i mean and look richard stanley is a guy that's into hardcore witchcraft okay so we could see why he himself would not be for a christian but that's not what this is about OK, this is about a guy coming into a situation and trying to force a change based on his beliefs. And I'm going to say that's wrong. And I know any other Christians who might actually be listening to the show are going to be like, what? But you have to understand that that's not how it works. And you don't do that. This is a job. And if it's not the kind of job you want, you don't put yourself into it. I'm not saying you shouldn't be an actor because I know I, I was on a forum recently where someone said if an actress is never willing to do nudity, they should never be an actress. And I couldn't disagree with that more. That's, no, I, I'm that's on your side with that. Yeah. yeah, that's an that's an idiotic statement. However, you shouldn't be an actress going out for every role that says requires nudity and then demand them to change that either. You can ask them to be sure, but don't demand it or force it and say, hire me and then say, no, I won't do it then and that right then and there. And that's the thing. That's the difference. You can't foist that upon people. And that's not how it works. And if you don't want to be in those type of films, don't audition, especially if you've seen the script. That's silly. As far as American History X, that's one of those instances where, you know, even the director later said, dang, 
Norton did it. He was fantastic in the movie. But it also leaves the question, what if we had gotten the director's vision? Like the Blade Trinity stories, where David Goyer, the director and writer, and Wesley Snipes were at each other's throats so much, they literally couldn't be on set together. That just says this movie is a, a disaster. You cannot do that. You cannot have have an actor and a director who are not on speaking terms. On the other hand, look at like Paul Thomas Anderson. He uses the same cast basically in every single film. Clearly, he has a fantastic relationship with his actors. And a good script, too, I'd like to add. Are you familiar with Timothy Hutton's work on Nero Wolf, the TV show? I saw promos. I've never seen the show, but I, I, I know of it. Fantastic little show. And one of my favorite things about it was that he treated it. As, he's one of the producers, by the way. That's why I keep bringing him up. He treated it uh, the cast like an ensemble piece. And he would constantly bring the same actors back throughout the run of the show as different characters. This is Chris very Carter rare. did that on the X Files. I can't even count how many times the same actor was a cop, and then he was a then he was a, a skull, and then he was a judge, and then he was an FBI agent, and then none of them are the same character. Yeah, and I think that there's something really fascinating about this because it takes a lot of confidence uh, of an actor to say yes, I'll be willing to do that over and over and over again. And to me, that's a real actor. Okay, uh, you know, th there's always been a is, well, I, I can't think of experience, but there's a difference between an actor and a star. I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, a star is something perhaps just made by audiences uh, or you could say a producer foisting that person upon us over and over and over again like we get today. You know, Gerald Butler will be a star. We're going to put him in 80 movies this year. You know, a real – and by the way, that's not to pick on Gerald Butler. He's actually pretty good. No, but, I would actually say on that one, Channing Tatum, Jai Courtney or Sam Worthington who are three of the worst – action actors i have ever seen in my life yet somehow the studios say no they will be stars they will be stars. yeah and same thing i only put gerald butler because they did do the same thing with him the only difference is he can act yeah um, jai courtney channing tatum and sam worthington are giant blocks of wood on film sam worthington is just painful but we won't go into it. but whatever real back quickly back to nero wolf there's a great show if you want to just see actors confident and coming back over and over and over again in different roles. And it shows you know, when you have a good script, you have people you trust around you. This is the kind of thing that works. And if you let egos get in your way, Blade 3, it's just going to destroy it. When an actor gets recast for a, a key role, for instance, I brought up Avery Brooks earlier. Avery Brooks, Avery Brooks played Hawk and Spencer for Hire. A Man Called Hawk, and the four Spencer TV movies. What a lot of people don't realize is there were nine Spencer TV movies where Ernie Hudson played Hawk. Wow, was that miscasting. That you kind of went, no, nobody but Avery Brooks can play Hawk. How dare you? And at the same time, Robert Urich was dead at this point. Joe Montaigne, he was fine, but he's not Spencer. They're both fine actors, but they're not Spencer and Hawk. Well, it's going to happen a lot. TV shows, movies, they we just had that with Mad Max, uh, Mad Max Fury Road in theaters uh, in the past there where Mel Gibson's replaced by Tom Hardy. I mean, you don't get a, a bigger contrast as far as name than that. So and everyone's arguing about was it better without Gibson or would have Gibson have brought another layer to the performance? Uh, we'll never know uh, as far as. These other actors that played that the part of Hawk, I didn't see them, so I apologize. I can't quote, you know, I can't answer on that. But 
I guess it comes down to a, is it an interesting character from what you've told me of Hawk? He is. Uh, what I've seen of it, I remember him being good. Hawk was the reason you watched a show called Spencer for Hire. Yeah, that's what I've heard from everybody. I've only seen a couple of those, but I do remember him standing out. Well, he stands out in every performance. He's such a powerful voice. He's got a presence to him. Your eyes are even drawn to the guy on whatever the movie is. There's a lot to be said that you know, Joe Montagna... I love that guy. He's that's a great actor. Again, we're just talking a great actor. Ernie Hudson's a really good actor too. I I can totally not see him as Hawk, like at all. That's not the kind of performance I could see from him. But Joe Montagna maybe just get away with it based on performance. So I could see him pulling it off on pure hubris. Well, speaking of pure hubris, where can people find Fred Fritz? Uh, you can find me at Movie Apocalypse on Facebook. Uh, as I've said it again and again, there's not much going on there. But, you know, if you want to just check in with me, I'm there or leave any comments. You can find me at 1201beyond.com. Contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And we didn't even get in tonight to half of the crap I wanted to talk about for actors. Damn, Same here. We may have to do this one again. Yeah, we might because I've got literally like 50% of my list still here. Me too. So we might revisit this at some point. You guys, try and have a good night. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Let's go. Ready? From the top. My favorite shows on TV have 12 minutes of advertising. I can't get behind that kind of time. Eat quickly, drive faster, make more money now. I can't get behind that. My kids say, he said to me, and I'm like, and he's like, and she's like, it's all, he's all, she's all. I can't get behind that kind of like English. That'll be six to eight weeks before delivery. The rising oceans, the warming temperatures. The dying polar bears, no tigers in 50 years. Rising poison in the air and water. I can't understand why the price of gas suddenly rises when oil goes up. But takes months to go down long after oil falls. I can't get behind any of that. I can't get behind the gods who are more vengeful, angry, and dangerous if you don't believe in them. Why can't all these gods just get along? I mean, they're omnipotent and omnipresent. What's the problem? What's the problem? What about the men who say, do as I do? Believe in what I say for your own good or I'll kill you. I can't get behind that. I can't get behind that. Everybody knows everything about all of us. That's too much knowledge. I can't get, get behind, behind that. using my streets to learn. If you learn to play the drums, you gotta go to a studio, go to a parking lot, for God's sakes! Why are you jeopardizing my life? I can't get behind a student driver. I can't get behind a driver who drives like a student driver. If you're gonna drive an urban assault vehicle, then get off the phone and keep your eyes on the road. Lifetime guarantee? Whose lifetime? Not mine. I haven't that much time left. Let's make it yours. Everybody's got a longer life than me. The leaf blowers. Is there anything more futile? Car alarms. Clap off. Clap on. Spam. Size matters. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. Yes, it no, it does. doesn't. No, yes, it, it doesn't. Does. Yes, it does. My yes, phone does. rings. Make millions in minutes. It's a computer. Lose inches and hours. Leave me the hell alone. Eat more. Spend less. The colonel is breakdancing. Give me a break. Credit terms arranged. I can't get behind any of that. I can't get behind so-called singers. They can't carry a tune. Get paid for talking. How easy is that? 
Well, maybe I could get behind that. Well, I can't. If you have to fix it with a computer, quantized, pitch corrected, and overly inspected, then you can't do it. And I can't get behind that. I can't get behind a fat ass. Yeah. Bill, can you turn around and do one more? Always can do one more. Let's hit it. Radio Drum is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.